Well, if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, we're continuing our study in really this first portion of chapter 3 tonight. If I can find my sermon, let's find that. There we go. Let's just, let's start by reading, reading this. Let's start in uh, verse 5, picking up from Sunday. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray one more time. Father, we're asking for the blessing that we can receive as your word is proclaimed and received. We're asking for a miracle to take place, that your spirit would bring life to our hearts and strengthening to our spirits that you would bring understanding, and Lord, that you would help us in this task. Father, I know that the enemy has purposes for tonight, and I know that you have purposes for tonight. Would you let your purposes stand and let his fail? We know that you are more powerful. We know that you are stronger and we know that you love us. You have you've died on our behalf. And so we want to give you glory. And one way we do that is by trusting you tonight. So we put our trust and our confidence in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our older brother who died for us. Amen. I don't know about you, but I like those TV shows that go behind the scenes and show how things work. Sometimes I watch movies and I'm like, I don't, the movie's okay, but I'd really like just to see how did they shoot this movie? Or do, you, do you, anybody like watching the, the shows where they go into, what's it called? How it's made, right? Where you get to go in and see how are crayons made, right? That, that's so interesting to me, right? You can get behind the scenes and see how something is done and you get a, a better appreciation for it and for the process. I, as a guy who tends to like candy, I really like the candy shows where they show how it's made and then you're like, whoa, that's a lot of high fructose corn syrup. Maybe I shouldn't eat that so much, right? But I like to see how it's made. There's a sense of where Paul is helping us understand some of the behind the scenes activity that's going on in the Christian life. We've spent three sermons uh, sorry. <laughs> now, looking at these first several verses of Colossians chapter 3, and I'm afraid I'm not even going to finish verse 9 and, and 10 tonight, but we're not, we'll get to that later. But what we've been learning 
is that there are rich theological motivations for why we as Christians are called to live a certain way. The Christian life is not merely a do this, don't do this. There is a ethic that is behind it. And Paul is concerned that we understand this. I mean, there are thousands of commands, I suppose, in the Bible. And for many people, commands are the essence of the Christian faith. Perhaps as a child, this is what you experienced first. And perhaps you have met or have uh, family members who see the Christian faith only as chains and bondage, things that you can't do. I remember talking with a man about the importance of salvation, and he just flat out told me, he said, I just don't want to give up my life. He sees the Christian life as loss. And certainly there's a sense where Christ said to lose one's life, but we recognize that we lose our lives to gain life. There's thousands of commands in the Christian life, and the primary strategy of the enemy is to somehow trick us into believing that these commands are unreasonable, they are unloving, and that they're silly. That they, that they don't make sense. And when we fall into temptation, there's really a sense where we're always believing him. Because otherwise we wouldn't fall into tem- we wouldn't sin. We wouldn't fall into sin, rather. Well, Paul wants us to be equipped against these schemes of the devil. Paul wants us to go behind the scenes and understand how some of this Christian ethic works. He wants to understand not only how to cr- live the Christian life, Not only how to behave, but also why. He wants us to see the connection between theology and how we live. About his teaching, about what God has done, and what that means for Tuesday afternoons, right? Paul wants us to understand the why and the how of the commands of the scriptures. Remember... At this point in Colossians chapter 3, we're making a a turning point away from some of these big theological ideas about being seated with Christ and our union with Christ into what this means for our work lives and our home lives and our parenting. And so Paul thinks it's important to understand that. And we can, if we understand how these commands work, and if we can understand what Paul is, is teaching us here, this will help nurture our faith and help us obey. I've noticed recently in my life, in my life a pattern of, uh, as I grow in my confidence of God, I'm finding that there are times of temptation where I've, I back off and it's like, I don't understand this situation at all, but I trust, I trust God. Right? He... he I've been doing this for a while, and he doesn't fail me. I get myself in all sorts of trouble. I really don't understand why he wants me to do this. I'm just going to do it. And I don't mean like these big life decisions. I mean, am I going to be patient with my daughter right now? Right? Trusting God in obedience. If, uh, have any of you ever been given a strange command to obey, right? If you have a boss, you're like, yeah, right? Or if you are, uh, you know, a citizen of a, of a county or, a, or, or of a country, right? We, we're given commands that sometimes we don't understand the logic behind it. 
right? I always love, <laughs> uh, I don't buy McDonald's coffee much, but when I do, I always look for the caution, this coffee is hot, right? Because there's some sort of backstory about how, like why they had to put that there, right? Same thing with warnings. But, but there are often times where we're given commands and we don't really understand why. For our daughters, they're starting to reach that stage. <laughs> They've reached that stage where they would like explanations with their instructions, right? Often there's a few arguments sandwiched in there, but they want to understand why. And of course, you can imagine, it doesn't matter why. You do what we say to do. That's, that's why, of course, you know. But, but I'm sympathetic with that, right? You, you, you know, I, it's helpful to understand the why. I don't want to add unnecessary hardship to my children. So, so often I try to give them explanations whenever appropriate. I remember Addie... Uh, our, our three-year-old. I remember one time early on, if you live in the Moore household, you are, uh, you have a lot of exposure to vegetables. I'll just say that, all right? And Addie was being introduced to broccoli. And I remember, you know, we, we call them trees in our house. Uh, but she was introduced to a tree and she, she was not, you know, super, super, confident what she's doing so she just picked up like a big piece and put it in her mouth and you know all you see is like broccoli sticking out of her mouth and she looked like what have you done to me like why did you feed me this this tree I'd rather eat a tree right she immediately regretted her decision I mean clearly it's not as good as as mac and cheese or, or corn dogs right so I sat down and began to reason with my two-year-old Addison your body needs vitamins and fiber and whatever else good stuff is in broccoli. And she looked at me and said, oh, thank you, Daddy. That's so helpful. No, she doesn't care about that, right? <laughs> she cared about her immediate experience of pain, right? And the lack of pleasure, right? And so we do what all other parents do. We bribe with dessert and threaten and all that stuff, you know? But you see, for me as an adult, I'm very well aware of the benefits of broccoli. And so at some point, eating broccoli didn't become hard for me. It became natural, right? Because I can happily eat it after years of torturous practice as a child that I, maybe that's why we do it, right? The torturous practice as a child, I understand, I understand why. And this, this makes eating broccoli easier. And I think Paul, part of what he's doing, or at least part of the way this works, is that he's helping make obedience easier, by explaining both the why and the how. He's, he's showing us the power. He's showing us the motivation. He's showing us why God is up to what he is up to. And, and that's a lot of what's going on in this. That's part of what's going on in this text. Now, I, I know I've skipped around quite a bit. I didn't walk straight through this text. And I'm still not entirely doing that. But generally speaking, I think that we can see four big reasons to put off sin and put on righteousness. Right? And so let's review these together and we'll pick up some new ones. The first thing we've seen is that we are called to put off sin and put on righteousness because we have a new identity. We are new creatures. Our new resurrection identity, we have learned, is inconsistent with sin. It doesn't make sense in the resurrection life. It doesn't make sense to engage in the things that led to our death, right? We've died to sin, so now we need to live dead to sin. In Christ, we've survived the storm of God's wrath. 
We've seen how Christ has served as our shield from God's wrath. And so now, let's stay away from that sin which causes wrath. We have a call to put away sin. We don't need it anymore. It's not useful to us. It's not appealing. We have this new identity. The old is gone. The new has come. And so the call goes out to us as it does all throughout the New Testament. Christian, be who you are. You've been, you've been made clean. Now be clean. Right? You've been made whole. You've been made new. Now be whole and be new. Become who you are in Christ. We can see this quite clearly here in verse 7 where Paul is saying, he says, In these you two once walked when you were living in them. Speaking of sin. You see what he's saying? He's saying that these are the sins that used to characterize your life. But now they don't. They're not consistent with your identity. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So there must be a clear distinction. A clear distinction between people who are spiritually dead and people who are spiritually alive. So let's live that distinction. Oh, I hope that people aren't confused when they look at my life. Let's make it clear. A second reason that we're seeing to put off sin, this is what we looked at on Sunday, is because wrath is coming. Sin is connected with wrath. We see this clearly in verse 6, right? The call to put our fleshly desires to death is aided and motivated for us by the reality that the wrath of God is coming. As Christians, this actually helps us because now we have insight to connect sin to judgment. We, on Sunday, we saw how, how this, we can see this in the existence of hell, how God punishes sin, or even on the cross where God punished sin. And God intends for us to understand judgment as a deterrent for sin. Judgment helps us, it helps make sin abhorrent and disgusting to us. And we need that, don't we? We need that conditioning in our hearts. But remembering this wrath fills, also fills our hearts with gratitude. Does it not? Don't forget the realities of hell. Don't forget what you have been saved from, Christians. In verse 7, Paul saying, hey, remember, you used to be under wrath. He wants them to remember the horror from which they've been saved, and he wants their hearts to be constantly full of joy. Have you ever had times in your life where your Christian faith just seemed dull and boring? Have you ever had times where coming into church and singing church songs is just, eh? But when you consider what we are singing about, when you consider the realities that are before us, there's never a reason to be bored. We have been saved from the wrath of God by Christ, and that reality is permanent for us. So no matter what's going on in our life, we have this fixed fixture of God's kindness for us. We have been saved. This is what Paul does, remember, in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, it's a parallel passage to Colossians 3, he said, you know, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were once lost and under the wrath of God like everyone else. We are to remember that. We are to remember that used to be me, but not anymore. It gives us compassion for those who are lost and who are blind. And it gives us joy. There's a lot of things, but we'll, we'll keep going. All right? God is calling us to remember where we've come from. So that when you're tempted to run back to your old ways, right? When you're tempted to live like the old self would, remember what you've been saved from. And remember what you've been saved for. So our Christian lives are, are based on this new identity and the fact, the glorious reality that we've been saved from the wrath of God. Our basis for living the Christian life, all of it stems from this new Christian identity. And Paul actually goes on to give us some more motivations for why we should strive for holy lives. The next is found down here in verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the third thing that we can see here is that we are called to put off sin and put on righteousness because we're being made new. Christian, you are being made new. You have been made new and you are being made new. You are being, we could say, renewed. That's what the text says. So often we lose this perspective and make the Christian life smaller than it is, right? We often think of it simply, I don't mean this, we think of it as simply as avoiding hell, right? We live the Christian life here so that we don't have to go to a bad place later. And we make it, we make it small, but it's more than that. God is renewing us. He's remaking us into what he <clears throat> originally intended. This, this, uh, this theme of renewal is a theme that is rich in the scriptures. Think, think, think with me back to Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember, how does the Bible say that man was made? That's right, we were made in the image of God. Now look back down at Colossians chapter uh, ten, uh, 3 verse 10. We're being renewed in knowledge after the image of who? The creator, God. So we're being re-imaged, remade, renewed into that original image, right? So and I'll have to discipline myself to not go too far down this road, but let's think about this for a second. God's original purpose let me, let, me just re, uh, let me just read this in Genesis 1, 26. It's a familiar passage, so you can listen, right? If I can turn there in my new Bible. Okay, so God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then he said, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Have you ever wondered why dominion over animals is so prominent in the creation narrative? Like, is this talking about fishing? Anyone ever go to, like, one of those men's events where they're like, God said to fish, right? It's right here in Genesis one twenty six. Buy that bass boat. I, I went to one of those growing up. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
dominion over the fish, right? <laughs> I set you up, right? <laughs> Okay, a dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. You want a, lot, you want a hot air balloon too? <laughs> Bass photos are good. Right. God's given dominion to man. Now what's so interesting about the, the original picture of what takes place in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is that God gives dominion, ruling authority over the world. He gives it to man. We were created to govern the world in such a way that it is like governing on his behalf. We are to be viceroys. We are to be viceregents. We're supposed to represent God's kingdom, his rulership, his world, in the way that he wants on his world. We're, we're to live in the world in such a way that would reflect God's priorities. Not only in how we treat animals and the creation, but how we treat others and how we interact with the creation. We were to be an extension of God's authority. But think about, think about how bad this went. Instead of ruling over creation, right, instead of imaging God, what do we do? Man fell drastically. Think about how dramatic and ironic this is. Instead of submitting to God and ruling over creation, man submitted to creation a snake. And that snake, that serpent, that part of the creation wanted to overthrow the whole kingdom. You see how backwards that is? You see how broken this is? Right? Man, instead of ruling over the creation the way God made him to, agreed to be ruled by a serpent and take part in overthrowing God's kingdom. See how backwards and broken that is? And so, in doing so, obviously, lots of things went wrong in the fall. This is why we suffer life outside of the garden. But our ability to image God and to display his rule is damaged by sin. Sin is the opposite of imaging God. But now God's fixing that. He is a redeeming God. And he is making all things new. And so he's restoring man to his original purpose. You're being renewed in the image of your creator. God is not only saving us from judgment, as glorious that is, but he is redoing Genesis 1. He is remaking. He's renewing, not an avid Adam's image, that went bad, but in the image of Christ, the second Adam, Romans 5, I think, says. Christ is the perfect man. Christ is the only one who accurately reflects God's kingdom. When Christ interacted with serpents, he did well. He resisted temptation and in doing so was able to crush the head of the serpent. Christ alone lives out, lived out the values of the kingdom. So do you see how this impacts our behavior? We failed to behave in the way that images God, and that led to wrath. But now we've been saved from that wrath, and we've been given a new life. And so now guess what? That new life is to be as it was originally created to be. That we are to reflect the values of the kingdom of God. 
And since there's no sexual immorality in God's kingdom, since there's no wrath and malice and anger in God's kingdom, there's no obscene talk in God's kingdom, and since God never intended us for even to have knowledge of such things, they had no place in the garden. And so they should have no place in our lives. And they'll have no place when God's kingdom comes in all of its fullness. Brothers and sisters, God is actively renewing you. And when he calls us to put off sin, he's saying, be who I made you to be. Be the real you. You see what I mean? The new you created and renewed, being renewed in God's image. A final motive for holy living is that we need to understand our new relationships. We'll go into this more next week. But we have not been saved for a me and God sort of relationship as easy, as easier. Wait, wait. Okay. That would be easier. It would be easier, I think, for if it was just like me and God. Because that would not require any love and any service and any giving and sacrificing and forgiving to all of you. Because, you see, God never does anything wrong towards me. So it's much easier to get along with him. But that's not how the Christian life works, right? We've been saved into a body. And we don't get to pick our siblings, right? Your kids ever talk about that? I want a new sister. <laughs> Can't do it, right? We don't get to pick, and God has saved us for new relationships. For new relationships. This new resurrection life is so radical that it changes how we interact with all other humans. It changes all human relationships. We can see this in part in verse 11. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, uh, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Part of what's going on here is Paul is saying there is no more barrier between relationships because of sin. There is no, it's not that there's no distinctions, but that there's no racial or religious or social barriers. They all came down in Christ because we have been made one in Christ. And this paves the way for the vices that are listed in verse 5 and verse 8. We'll deal with some of those later. Why they're prohibited and it's because they damage others. They don't fit in the new relational ethic of God's kingdom. And this too is the renewal of the ideal of the Garden of Eden. Where God intended for Adam and Eve to relate to one another perfectly. Naked and unashamed. And to relate to God perfectly. God's plan for humanity was no conflict between man and God and no conflict between God and God. Can you just imagine no broken relationships? And I don't just mean the big bad stuff, but like no misunderstandings, no miscommunications. When you want to be close to someone and you can be because there's no sin to get in the way, what a glorious image. God is undoing the Tower of Babel. Where man was scattered because of sin, God is regathering together, saving people from all corners of the earth, every color, every skin type, every hair type, Eve, yep, all types of people, all languages. That is the picture in Revelation, is it not? Worshiping from every tongue and tribe and nation. And in light of this master plan, God 
has called us, as his people, to live in unity. For we're one together in Christ, who is all and in all, and that precludes certain kinds of behavior. Anything that is disruptive to unity. And we'll see some details later. But let's think now, let's think again for a moment on how we are to lay aside this old life. We've already spoken in some detail on Sunday. I say some detail. I really want much detail. We've, we've mentioned the command to kill sin, right? To, to be dramatically attacking, seeking to remove the life and the vitality of our sin, to starve it. We mentioned that on Sunday, and we saw that in verse 5, that initial command. But I want us to also pay attention to the commands to put off or to put away, which are prominent in both Colossians and, and Ephesians. This practice of putting away or putting off sin, they're very similar. But let's, again, make sure we've got this text in our mind there, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And then again in verse 9, seeing that you've put off the old self. Why do you not lie? Because you've put off the old self. Not only the old self, but also its practices. It's not enough to put off the old self and then act like the old self. We must put off the old self and all its behavior. What does it mean to put off or to put away? Well, the, the image is one of changing clothes, as you have likely heard, right? It's slightly less violent than putting to death, right? But we can add, let's add this image to our spiritual arsenals. The New Testament is constantly using imagery of changing clothes, to have spiritual significance, to, trans, to, to signify the transition from an old life to a new life. I don't think this is, uh, I don't think it originated with the New Testament church, but was a common practice that there were cultish uh, backgrounds for, for, for clothing ceremonies, right? And we use these in all sorts of things. But cultish, I don't necessarily mean evil, but, but groupish, um, Activities of spiritual ceremony, um, of clothing ceremonies. But the New Testament uses it frequently. In fact, uh, my understanding is that in the New Testament church, there was a tradition when someone was baptized that, that, would, that, would, um, that would give a picture of this. That when, when folks were baptized, the church recognized that there was such a dramatic change that, this, that baptism was signifying that such a radical change had taken place that after they were baptized, they turned in their old clothes and they were given a new set of clothes, which were, guess what color? All white and clean. And they would wear those clothes for quite some time. Now, in, in a culture where you don't have dozens of changes of clothes, it's a little bit more significant. But isn't that a beautiful image? You continue to wear the white robes of baptism. Signify, I have been made clean, so it doesn't make sense for me to go play in the mud, right? What a beautiful picture. And this makes sense. I mean, a change of clothes can often symbolize a major change in status or responsibility. Medical students or dental students have a white coat ceremony saying, hey, you are moving into your career and you're going to begin practicing as a medical provider, Right? Police cadets graduate and they're given a badge and, and a gun. A similar thing is true of firemen and paramedics and pilots and astronauts, right? With new clothes come a new set of 
responsibilities. My dad is a, a pilot, and uh, I mean, imagine if he, and sometimes he has to fly in, in first class or coach or something to go somewhere else, and, and he often does that in his uniform. And there's been times where he's been needed in the cockpit when he wasn't captaining the plane. Imagine if my dad was sitting there in his pilot's uniform, and there's a serious medical problem with both pilots up front, and he's like, eh. Right? He's expected to do something, right? You got the clothes on, man. You got to go do something about the plane. That, that, that makes sense to us. He's expected to have some knowledge of what to do, right? There are expectations that come with new clothes. More than a dozen times in the New Testament, we see New Testament authors referring to changing of clothes to symbolize a change in spiritual status. I was reading and thinking and trying to imagine this in John uh, in, in uh, Revelation chapter seven, when John is describing the picture that he sees of all of the church gathered to worship around the throne of God, and he finds it important to note what we will be wearing, dressed in robes of white. And friends, if you think about that. If you think about your life and you think about all the stains that should be on your clothes, I hope that produces joy and thanksgiving in your heart. Because I got no business wearing white clothes in heaven. That is something that has been purchased for us. So live according to the white clothes, the white robes that we will one day wear. The white white robes are significant because God's people are called to be holy. And, and And in conversion and in regeneration, God strips us of our filthy rags. And he calls us, don't live in those again. Don't don't put that stuff on anymore. Put it off. But that's only part of the process. Because if you think about it, if you take off your old dirty clothes. You're naked. So you got to get some new clothes, right? So there's a call to put this off and then to put on righteous deeds, which you will see there in verse 12. Verse 5 is put to death. Verse 9 is put off. And then in verse 12, we see put on. And this this list of deeds that please the Lord. But what specifically are we called to put off? Let's just look at these briefly. We won't get through all these tonight. But we can look at one of these vice lists. Let's start with the one in verse 5. I skipped this one mostly before. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, now generally speaking, it seems that Paul is, is aiming at sexual purity. And I, think, I don't think there's a specific instance in Colossae that he's writing about, but just that, that this is probably the, one of the primary struggles for, for humanity, right? This first term, sexual immorality, is, is a generic term. It's the generic term for sexual sin in the New Testament, pornea, right? It's where we get pornography, and, and, and it's, or it's where we get the word pornography. And it really refers to any sexual sin of any kind. From the big, big, bad, ugly stuff to the real small stuff that no one knows about. Or so you think. 
The Bible makes it clear that, that any sort of sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship, and we must clarify between a man and a woman, is sexual sin. That God has created sex and placed it in a particular context, and when we take it outside of that context, or use it in that context wrongly, we're sinning. Sexual immorality. The second term, impurity. This, this word, in my understanding, speaks more to, to the moral corruption or, or the unclean, uh, uncleanness that is often used in, in, in connection with sin, particularly sexual sin. It's used in different places in the New Testament. The third term is passion or, or, or lust. The Greek there is pathos, right? It's, it's the word for passion. But always in this use in the New Testament, this is referring to sexual sin. This fourth term, evil desire, is a little bit more broad, it seems, but it's, it's speaking simply to the basic human tendency that we all have towards sin. Evil desires. The desires that are evil, the desires that get us into trouble. Remember, Jesus and James alike both said that every single sin begins with a desire. You remember James? In James chapter 1 verse 14? Where he said that each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. And then the desire is conceived and gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, what's it produce? Death. Sin begins with desire. And so it's not enough that we merely pay attention to the outward behavior and the words, as important as they are, but we've got to pay attention to the desires that are going on in our hearts. So asking ourselves, what do I really want right now? That's the bulk of counseling, is helping people think about what is it that you're really after right now? And seeing where we need a Savior in our, in our struggle with sin, in our attempt to put to death and put off, we have to pay attention to the desires. And that's how you kill sin at the root. I was reflecting on how it's interesting that Paul uses, it seems like four words that are basically saying, I mean, almost the same thing. Like very, very similar. A lot of connection. But, but that's kind of how language works, right? I was thinking about, you know, the more, the more complex or detailed a subject is, the more words we need to talk about it. This is why, for me, I know like 15 colors. Like something is either red or it's pink. I don't know what fuchsia is. I don't know what pink rose is. Or I, don't even, I can't even come up with examples, right? But if you work with color, you probably have more colors to describe, right? The, the same thing we've uh, heard before. You've heard and I confirmed it. It's on a newspaper, so it's true, right? Uh, that the Eskimos have more than 50 words for snow, right? And uh, I guess that makes sense for them. Snow is a big part of their lives, and they spend so much time interacting with it. They're aware of the subtle differences and, and the, you know, between the different types of snow. How many words for sexual sin are there in the English language? It seems like we are infinitely creative in how we can pervert what God has given to marriage. Paul's covering his basis. The enemy has so radically perverted God's design for sexual intimacy that we can sometimes barely recognize it. I can't think of an array of sin 
in our culture that we need to more desperately put away. I was reading one commentator and he made the observation that, you know, it is very conceivable that if you spend one evening watching cable television in 2018, whatever network, whatever show, and it could be football, you will be exposed to more sensuality than your grandparents were exposed to in their lifetime for many of them. And that's the world we live in. I mean, have you been to the mall before? I, mean, I got to like fast and pray before I walk in the place, right? It's a nightmare. We must be at the front of warring against sexual sin. God has saved us out of this perversion. He has given us a new heart. And we must do the hard work of putting it off and executing it. But this is hard work. Alexander McLaren, he gets to the heart of why this can be so hard. It, it seems like it would be easier to just like not behave in a certain way. But when you're doing war with your desires, listen to what he says. I think I've used this quote before. He says, it's far easier to cut off your hand, which after all is not really me, than to sacrifice passions and desires, though they be my worst self, are myself. This is a battle that we must fight no matter what the cost is. And I'll save the rest of this for later, for later the, the covetousness. But let's, as we think about this in conclusion, I remember growing up and, and as I was younger in my walk with the Lord, I remember I'd come to these vice lists and I would I'd kind of skip over them. You ever do that? Or, or I would dread them. Because they are kind of depressing. Because if I'm honest, right, in my, in my good moments, they convict me every time. Even the really big bad ones. Who among us has a heart that always desires the right things? Who among us has a heart that has not gone astray or become unclean? Who among us has not acted in such a way that God should justly, as we discussed on Sunday, launch that intercontinental ballistic missile of his wrath towards us? already on the way. It's just en route. So we as Christians must not forget the wrath from which we have been saved. And we are called to rejoice in Jesus Christ who is our shield and our righteousness. So leave with that tonight. Father, I pray that you would give us clarity on your word and that we would leave here tonight with new fuel to fight sin, but to do so trusting totally in Jesus, who is perfectly righteous on our behalf. May he receive glory at your right hand tonight. We ask this in his name. Amen. You dismiss church. Go in peace.